Song of Songs. We've done three sermons, or this will be the third sermon in the series. We started off where we looked at the general context, the genre, the authorship. Uh, we considered the grand message of the book, um, that there's romantic love, uh, covenantal marriage, and it can be celebrated and valued. God is invested in our joy, but there are real and necessary boundaries that must be respected. Last week, we looked at three main points of wisdom, that love is to be mutually submissive, self-giving. Uh, then we also looked that we do not awaken love before its time, and that the third point was that we as a church, as community, as friends, as family, that we are to protect the vulnerable. And we'll conclude this week, and all of God's people can say, Amen, I'm done with this romantic talk, let's move on, all of this, you're beautiful, no, you're beautiful, and back and forth, all of that stuff, um, and then we can move on. But um, when I was in grade three, so I promised that I would finish this trilogy of Trent's love life of grade one, two, and three, so Grade one, uh, I don't need to tell that. We, you'll have to listen to the audio on that one. Grade two, same thing. Grade three, so I've won the poetry contest, right? So grade two, I've won the poetry contest. So now Natasha and I, I'm allowed to at least be friends with her because I won. Um, at least that's my thinking. So we're hanging out. We're friends. I have romantic feelings towards um, this little friend of mine, and it's in the winter time, and I remember we were playing tag, um, and it was winter, she had the cutest little onesie zip-up purple and pink jumpsuit, the kind that makes you like, kind of look like, I don't know, a donut, or not, no more like a state puff marshmallow man kind of thing, that's a better way to describe her. Anyways, so she's, <laughs> so she's, <laughs> so she's, I'm running from her. And to this day, I don't know if I tripped on purpose or by accident, but I tripped, I fell, I fall, and she jumps, and she tags me. She tags me with her lips on my cheek, and I get up, and the snow all around me has melted for miles. <laughs> the warmth in my heart is strong and profound. Um, do you guys have a bit of an echo happening with the sound? Are we, no, we're okay? All right, just me. Um, so, with all of that, um, we then go to the poetry contest. Love is great and strong, and she beats me in the poetry contest. And my heart is shattered with those words, with her poetic words. I can no longer be in love with her. <laughs> you know, because what nine-year-old boy can, you know, love, love a girl who schools him? in poetry, right? So anyways, that's my story. It concludes. Um, Sticks and stones, they may hurt my bones, but words will never hurt me. Well, her words, winning that contest, they hurt me deeply. Um, I'm sure many of us actually grew up with that statement, grew up hearing that kind of thing. It's like, you can say all these things, but that doesn't hurt me. Um, it's that little defense against verbal abuse or assaults. Um, the problem is, is that statement's not really true. 
I don't know if you've noticed that in your own life, but I've noticed in my life, and particularly in this world now, where image is king, perception is so paramount, and with one word or accusation, it seems like people can get ruined, right? Words do have power. So in some ways, I wonder, would you rather a bruised arm or a bruised reputation? Um, you know, a stinging shin from a kick or a pierced heart. I think many of us would vote for, you know, the punch in the shoulder. Uh, the soul or the heart, however, it seems that, that we live in a place and a time, and we always have, where this is a challenge. Words hurt. Um, in the UK, I just read this headline, schoolboy 15 bullied to death. This is what they said, bullied to death by trolls on the internet. Friends say vile posts drove him to despair. Friends say Joshua Umsworth um, was hounded by internet trolls. The 15-year-old was found dead behind his home in Lancaster. Uh, school says staff and pupils are shocked and upset. Yeah, this, this is our reality now. We have books like 13 Reasons Why, um, a story of a young high school student um, as she descends into despair, brought about by betrayal and bullying, culminating with her suicide. Uh, she details these 13 reasons why she was driven to, her, to end her life in this audio diary, which she then mailed to a friend two weeks after her death. So we have this reality. Perhaps words don't kill us directly, but we cannot delude ourselves. Words have power to tear down or build up, to heal or wound. When we look to Scripture, we can see God takes this matter very seriously. In Matthew 12, 36 to 37, Jesus says, but I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Wisdom literature also has much to say about the power of words. Uh, in the book of Job, Job cries out, how long will you torment and crush me with words? The preacher in Ecclesiastes says, the quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of the ruler of fools. Proverbs says, and Proverbs has much to say on this, the words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. The tongue of the power uh, the tongue has the power of life and death, and those who live it will, will eat its fruit. Uh, gracious words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. The Song of Songs uh, speaks to this as well. While being unique in its, in its method and in its style, it is included along with Job, Ecclesiastes, and Proverbs as a book of wisdom. It is in the book of wisdom kind of connection in, the, in that. And so this wisdom, however, from Song of Songs draws us to a scene and to images. It evokes our senses, and its wisdom calls to us in a different way. It doesn't just directly say, you shouldn't do this, you should do this. So today we are going to look at the first song that the lover and the beloved exchange words back and forth with one another. And if, if we are paying attention, this exchange can reveal to us the transformative power of words and how God designed words to be used. We live in a world where we need to develop a lifestyle of speaking words of life 
And this gives us a hint and points us in that direction. Song of Songs, you can open up with your Bibles or your app. I don't have it behind us, uh, so you'll have to grab a Bible from the front or the one that you brought along with you. Um, you will want to turn to Song of Songs, chapter 1, starting at verse 5. Um, what, when I read this, however, um, don't listen to this as a lecture. Listen to this as poetry, all right? There's a lot to take in this passage, but I'm just going to read it briefly and quickly. We don't have a ton of time, but hopefully we can get through all of this really good stuff that is in front of us. Um, while you're looking for it, I'm just going to pray for our time. Lord, Song of Songs is a unique book. We celebrate that it is in your word, that it has truth for us today. We ask, Lord, that you open our eyes and our ears to hear and see what you have for us today. Uh, we need your voice. We need your, your wisdom and your guidance for our lives. Teach us your ways, O oh Lord. May we be sensitive to your direction. May we, may we respond to your word um, with, with effort. In your name, amen. All right, songs one, five, and I'll read all the way into Songs 2, chapter 2. Dark am I, yet lovely, daughters of Jerusalem, dark like the tents of Kedar, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards. My own vineyard I had to neglect. Tell me, you whom I love, where you graze your flock and where you rest your sheep at midday, why should I be like a veiled woman beside the flocks of your friends? If you do not know, most beautiful of women, follow the tracks of the sheep and graze your young goat and graze your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. I liken you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariot horses. Your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make you earrings of gold studded with silver. While the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. My beloved is to me a shallot of myrrh, resting between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of En Gedi. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful your eyes are doves. How handsome you are, my beloved. Oh, how charming, and our bud bed is verdant. The beams of our house are cedars, and rafters are firs. I am a rose, a Sharon of lily, Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Like a lily among thorns is my darling among the young women. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my beloved among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. Let him lead me to the banquet hall, uh, and let his banner over me be love. Strengthen me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. His left arm is under my head, and his right arm embraces me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. We'll stop there. Okay, a lot in that passage. Um, the poet has masterfully weaved images of these calm countrysides with vineyards, we got sheep, goats, shepherds, and then we are flown to the palace with images of luxury, with ornaments, jewels, and gold, and then back to the fields, lilies, 
and an apple tree. These, image, these images don't just go after our minds in an abstract, abstract truth. It's not like, here you go, here's information. It, it stirs our hearts and our emotions with images and songs. Um, did you notice how the poet continually uses fragrances and then tastes? He's trying to get us, all of our senses, to be activated within these poems. This poem is full of passion, desire, and sexual imagery, but threaded through this sensual text is truth about the transformative power of words. I'm not sure if you caught it, if you saw it, um, but we'll discover it together as we look through what I just wrote. We're going to start at what she thinks of herself. So let's look at the very beginning of what I just read, and you could turn to uh, 1.6. She says, do not stare at me. She says, don't stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. She asks these daughters of Jerusalem not to look at her skin because her skin is dark. Her skin is tanned from long hours out in the unrelenting sun. It has scorched her, and she has become very aware of its effects on her natural beauty. Now, it's important to realize this has nothing to do with ethnicity or race. This woman who compares herself to the daughters of Jerusalem, these city women, these city girls, daughters of Jerusalem, um, and she's made a judgment about herself. For us, this condemnation of, of her dark skin might seem odd to us because we live still in a culture where, like, tanning is the best, but we know that in other cultures there are other things that are prescribed as beautiful. You could think of uh, the geisha, where uh, Japanese and Asian culture, cultures often will paint themselves to be lighter. That's considered to be beautiful. So in this cultural context, this is primarily what's going on. In this culture, the effects of sun indicated that she was likely a laborer and of lower class. She was a lower class woman. And because of this, and she's looking over at the pale-skinned city girls who do not toil in fields, who just get what they need and don't have to work in the vineyards and in the fields. So just then, as, in, as it is now, we have women comparing, judging themselves to each other, and not a lot has changed in these past 3,000 years of when this book was first written. We still compare ourselves to each other. We still say things like, please don't stare at me because of X, Y, or Z, whatever the case might be. And as we read a little further, we notice that she is now blaming her mother's sons. Now, that's interesting choice, mother's son. She's distancing herself from her brothers. Um, she's not even really referring to them as brothers at that point. Um, and so she's got this distance, and she's frustrated with them. Um, we don't know exactly why they are angry, these angry brothers. Perhaps they are overly protective because they, were, they had the sense of responsibility over her purity. Um, maybe they do not want her to be free. Maybe they are afraid that her beauty or free spirit will bring shame upon the family. But what we do know is that this is a situation that she has been forced into and that she is unable to take care of her own vineyard. She's not able to take care of herself in many ways like a Cinderella story whose family impedes her ability to take care of herself. The effects of this poem is that we feel sorry for this woman, but also there's a sense of respect for her assertiveness in the face of her domineering brothers. So we have this situation. So here's a woman frustrated by her situation, 
and embarrassed by her sun-darkened skin. Can any of you relate to that type of situation? You're embarrassed by how you look, frustrated by your situation, and this is how she's thinking of herself. This is where she's at. And then we move to what he thinks of her. So now let's consider what a man thinks of her. His first words that this man says are, I liken you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariot horses. Husbands, you can turn to your wife now and, honey, you look like a mare. You look like a horse. <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, you, well, you can't. Don't, don't do that. Yeah, that's fine. Um, but what kind of statement is that, right? Well, we know that there's a cultural nuance going on here because uh, we, we wouldn't do that ourselves. So here's some interesting things about what just took place there as he says these words. A bit of background that I find fascinating. Um, many suggest that Pharaoh's horses were the best of the best. And as Pharaoh, his chariot and his horses were likely covered in beautiful uh, ornamentation and jewels. This would elevate their majesty and their status, their glory. And so if you've ever seen movies or read books like uh, Black Stallion or Black Beauty, you would understand the true majesty and magnificence of the horse that it's a wonderful creature. But beyond that, when we see in verse 10, that he then connects it to, your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with strings of jewels. There's this status, there's this beauty that's attached to um, this type of thing. Now, another interesting observation that a scholar made was that apparently stallions or male horses were used in battle, uh, most, in most cases, and then the presence of a mare in heat would distract all of the horses. Now, this strategy was actually attempted in a war, in a conflict between Egypt and Kadesh, all right? So uh, Egypt and Kadesh, they are having a conflict, and now, um, so Kadesh brings out a mare to distract the stallions to try to sway the war. Now, apparently, there was a soldier who was able to kill the mare before she caused problems, but interesting nonetheless, that if we take this defensive strategy as an image being presented, um, that this man is basically saying, you drive all the men crazy, and me too. Um, you are so beautiful, you drive me crazy, and everyone can't handle you, you're just too beautiful. That's probably a better contemporary meaning than, hey, mayor, how you doing? So we have this, um, and we are able to conclude that he sees her as beautiful. Whatever, however interesting language is going on here, we can at least acknowledge he sees her as beautiful. A beauty he does not hesitate to declare through poetic imagery as we see here, but then later, straight up, very clear, however, or how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes are doves. This man affirms and speaks life into this young woman who is just three verses earlier been asking girls to not look down on her, like, don't look at me, don't look at me, I'm tanned, I don't look good, and he's saying, you're beautiful, you are beautiful. And as this man speaks words of love and affection to her, she responds back with her own words. And then he says, you are beautiful, and then she responds back with her words, and there's this bit of a give and take, and it's kind of that picture I was kind of alluding to before, you are beautiful. No, 
you are beautiful. No, no, I love you. I love you more. And they go back and forth. And there's a bit of this escalating affection and words of affirmation that are going back and forth between these two people. And then in the midst of this, there is this vulnerability that peeks through, this moment that is easy to miss in all of the poetic nature of it, that she then speaks into this moment where she says, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. And then he responds, like a lily among thorns is my darling among the young women. In this moment, she's saying, okay, okay, maybe, maybe I am beautiful like a lily in the valley. Lilies are common. They were everywhere. They were beautiful, but they, they were very common. And so here she is saying, okay, fine, I, I'm, I'm beautiful, I, I may, I'm sort of able to accept this a little bit, but I'm, I'm just like everybody else. And then instantly he jumps in with these words, no, 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 you're a lily among thorns. Let's clarify right here. So in her vulnerability, she's saying, okay, maybe, like, maybe I'm okay. And he's like, you're not just okay, you're great. It's a beautiful moment where she is being vulnerable. She's reached this point where she's willing to acknowledge just maybe, just maybe. And then he jumps in with beauty and says, you are beautiful. This man having this single-minded attention that he's looking, and she in her vulnerability, he does not abuse that or misuse that. He just steps right in. And then it's only after these words of affirmation and affection that they share such a beautiful moment together. Now, before I move on, I just want to kind of quickly summarize where I've been going, kind of what I've been highlighting, the wisdom that's been embedded with inside of this poetry. First of all, she lets herself be honest about how she's feeling. She's honest. She's transparent. And then he responds with single-minded attention. Men and women, we are given to so many distractions, and this world is so full of these corrupt images, and like what you had mentioned earlier, we live in a world where the vulnerable are abused. And in this moment, in her vulnerability, he looks her straight in the eyes and says, you're beautiful. You are beautiful. Husband, you need to say those words. And he responds directly. He says them specifically. He doesn't say things like this, and this is a statement I've never been a fan of. You know I love you. If you catch yourself saying, you know I love you, just don't say it and just say I love you. Why, why like, oh, you know. Somehow you've proven, no, just say it. You know, so anyways, that's my own, I have a beef with that statement. You know I love you. <laughs> and she doesn't fight against the compliment, right? He affirms her. He's like, no, 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 you're not just a lily in the fields. You're a lily among thorns. Like, you are elevated. You are great. She doesn't defend it. She doesn't say, no, 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 no. She is willing to take the compliment. She embraces that compliment. How often do we, after we've been affirmed and there's been affection given, or we've been built up with encouraging words, have we then just rejected and say, no, no, no. Guys, don't do that. Women, don't do that. When we're given encouragement to one another, don't just say, don't dismiss that. Embrace it, because that's a rejection of a gift. So that's an important balance for us to consider. And then after all of these things, his words, he says these words, and then his actions follow. Because what does he do for her? So with these words, um, there's a statement, and I'll just jump to his banner over me is love, and then later it says that his left arm is under my head and his right arm embraces me. So what, these are some actions. Let me speak to this very quickly. 
What is his banner and why does it matter? Now, for many of us, we might understand this, but in military terms, the banner was always a symbol of like the army coming through and it's like the banner of the king is like under the banner, there's protection, there's power, there's might. So under his banner is there's this protection, there's a strength, there's a support happening. Under the king's banner was basically this kind of a statement. But more than just power and authority and protection, this man has marked her out as his own and has stamped her with a public display of his love. The metaphor implies belonging, inclusion, and commitment. And so we have this banner. It's a beautiful picture, and you could look up the word banner throughout the Old Testament, and lots of pictures are that we come under the banner of the Lord, right? Under his protection, under his authority, under his might. And so this imagery is connected at this moment. His actions matter. He says, I'm here for you, and then he actually is there for her. Next, we move to his embrace. Now, there's no question that this is a sensual embrace, but that so much more is going on in this. So as the young woman has admitted her frailty, like she's kind of admitted, you know, I'm faint with love, and then she's given herself over completely to her man, he does not abuse this privilege or take advantage of her vulnerability, as we've talked about already. And with his left hand, it's, there's a gentleness, there's a compassion, there's a sensitivity supporting the back of her neck. But at the same time, he has his right hand, which is symbolic throughout history and within poetry as strength and protection. He pulls her close. In both of these images, there's two things happening, comforter and protector. Now these images, while sensual in nature, reveal to us our actions must follow our words Words of affection soon become real bitter if it never is followed with action. So he's, a, he's professed his love and his affection in words. He's moved to this stage, and then he respects that privilege and honor in such a comforting and lovely way. So out of this moment of pleasure, we've got a couple minutes, I'm going to finish up here. Out of this moment of pleasure, intimacy, desire, affection, vulnerability, all of these things that were discussed, she then has this confidence where she's like, Women, wait. She then, the very people, she's like, don't look at me. I'm not that pretty. Don't look at me. She's now saying loudly and clearly, like, wait. Um, the ma marriage is beautiful. Do not awaken love before it's time. All of these things. She has been transformed from someone who's kind of like staying in the background to someone who's willing to stand up, be seen, and to speak loudly and clearly for all to hear. Through the song, we see this transformative power at work through words. We have seen how their back and forth of words has built them up to a place where she was able to be vulnerable, and then he didn't abuse that vulnerability. Do we want to see transformation happen around us? I believe we do. And our words matter. The words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Do we want to see, see healing? I think we do. As a community, we want to speak this kind of language of love. Now, we can translate, and we must translate it now at this point, from this romantic sense to just general application for our entire lives. The way we use our words makes a difference. And how we use our words, it says that the tongue has the power of life 
and death, those who love it will eat its fruit. Do you want to give life or death? 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. Now, you might be thinking, Trent, I agree, it's important for us to speak words of life, for us to have affection. That is critical. Now, I know that for a lot of us, we find ourselves in situations where it's like, I've not been affirmed in a really long time. I feel pretty, like, beat up and hurt, and I don't even know kind of how to step out of this. Well, the one thing is that God's word, in fact, just like this, this song of songs was just to these two people, the, all of scripture is for all of us to receive God's love letter to us. Now, I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. Um, it's a perfect song for us because for some of us, we've been like, okay, good thoughts, application here and here, but what we really need is to hear words of affirmation and affection come from our Lord. I'm just going to read a couple of passages uh, while they start playing, and then we're just going to sing and close with this song. Um, so here are some words taken from Scripture that I, I pray you would receive with open hands as words from our Heavenly Father to you, so that from that place you can speak words of life and love to those around you. You may not know me, but I know everything about you, says the Lord. I know when you sit down and when you rise up, I am familiar with all your ways. Even the very heads on your head, hairs on your head are numbered. For you were made in my image. In me you live and move and have your being. For you are my offspring. I knew you before you were even conceived. I chose you when I planned creation. You are not a mistake. For all your days are written in my book. I determine the exact time of your birth and where you would live. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. I knit you together in your mother's womb and brought you forth on the day you were born. I have been misrepresented by those who don't know me. I am not distant and angry, but am the complete expression of love. And it is my desire to lavish my love on you, simply because you are my child and I am your father. I offer you more than your earthly father ever could. I am the perfect father. Every good gift that you receive comes from my hand, for I am your provider, and I meet all your needs. My plan for your future has always been filled with hope. Because I love you with an everlasting love, my thoughts towards you are countless as the sands on the seashore, and I rejoice over you with singing. I will never stop doing good to you, for you are my treasured possession. I desire to establish you with all my heart and all my soul, and I want to show you great and marvelous things. If you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. Delight in me, and I will give you the desires of your heart, for it is I who gave you those desires. I am able to do more for you than you could possibly imagine, for I am your greatest encourager. I am also the Father who comforts you in all troubles. When you were brokenhearted, I am close to you. As a shepherd carries a lamb, I, carry, I have carried you close to my heart. Heavenly Father, as we sing this song, may we sing these songs and allow you to speak your words of life and love and affection. May we accept your embrace in our lives so that we can turn to others and speak the words that are necessary 
to speak them clearly and directly, and to build each other up so that we can be the confident, hope-filled people that you call us to be. In your name, amen. As we go, seek to give words of life. If there's a person you haven't said uh, affirming things to in a while and it's time, do that uh, and know the power of it.